Influential people are never satisfied with the status quo. They're the ones who constantly ask, what if, why not? They're not afraid to challenge conventional wisdom, and they don't disrupt things for the sake of being disruptive. They do it to make things better. Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachum, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. That quote's from Dr. Travis Bradbury, but uh, we're also going to talk to someone who prides themselves on productive disruption, and you're really in for a treat. Uh, I'm a kid in the candy store excited to share this conversation with all of you. Today's guest, world-renowned researcher, author, presenter, trainer, advisor to B2B commercial execs around the world, also a great storyteller. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Challenger Sale, which everybody uh, that listens and watches to this podcast is familiar with, and also the author of The uh, Challenger Customer. You've also seen his work frequently in other prominent publications to include the Harvard Business Review. Maybe most importantly, he's known as having the biggest crystal ball in B2B sales. Brent Adamson, welcome to Coach to Scale. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I, I think like 10% of that was true. I did write the book, or at least one of the people wrote the book. Yeah. Other than that, it's, it's all, I appreciate it. It's very flattering. And what a great quote. That's it. That's an, I don't know. You got to send that to me afterwards. That's outstanding. I like that a lot. All right, I will. Uh, sounds good. Thanks for the the, the feedback there. I, I, I try. Um, so you know, there, there. By the way, there's it's 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 adjacent to a quote uh, Steve Jobs, like you know, the, the most quotable executive ever, maybe. But other than I don't know P.T. Barnum, uh, but the um, Steve Jobs once told his team, I think there may be video of it. He said, "We're here to put a dent in the side of the universe. Otherwise, why should we even be here at all?" And that's that's kind of how I live my life. I don't necessarily succeed, but it's like it, it, maybe it's something to do with. Well, we can get really deep really fast. Like, let's dive right into it. Like mortality and the fact that all of us are here for just a short while and you kind of want to leave your mark, but hopefully leave your mark in a positive way for good and just make the world just a little bit better place than how you left it. I don't know. Well, you know, I think uh, as as we all get a little bit um, longer in our careers and we've-, we've Older. <laughs> and, and, and we've we've been fortunate. We have the uh, the opportunity to think about stuff like that. So I know in my little yeah. slice of the world, that's what we're trying to do with with this podcast. And I know you've Super spent cool. a lot lot of time doing that over the the past uh, couple of decades. So so thank you. Um, so uh, by the way, the the most commonly quoted person I, I like to say is Mark Twain because I feel like whenever someone doesn't know who said it, it goes to Mark Twain. He couldn't, have possibly, the other he couldn't have possibly said all that stuff. All right. Or Lombardi or so, some football coach of some kind. It's not yet, but anyway, I get your point. Um, all right. A lot of myths out there. We, we start off with a myth buster question, uh, Brent. Um, what, what's a myth you constantly hear out there when it comes to coaching salespeople or sales leaders that you think's misguided or maybe even complete BS? <laughs> all right. So I have an answer in my head. I, so let me ask you this, Matt. What do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. Honestly, I have no idea what you're going to say. Oh, I, but, I, but I imagine you've heard this a lot because we all hear this about coaching. Um, there's just not enough time. Okay. Um, right. That that feels like, should we start there? Because that feels like the number one thing that I've, you know, back you know, at corporate executive board CB back in the day. And so this is all pre-challenger 2004 to 2007. We got on a pretty deep run of research around sales coaching and, and really changed some minds and had a huge impact. And, and then we all kind of lost the thread, which is unfortunate because here we are, what, 20 years later almost, and now we're all kind of back to square one. But that was certainly back then at least. And I, I'd love to just get your thoughts on this. I imagine you're hearing this today. It's like, oh, we just, we know it's important. We just, we've got so many other meetings, so much things to do, and we just, we just don't have time. Brent, um, I, you know, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed because I feel like if I put a half a second of thought into the question, I would have answered that. And here's why. For the past over 10 years, 11 years, uh, myself, my partners, we've gone around the world uh, working, yeah. uh, training uh, B2B sales organizations, uh, coaching, consulting leaders. 
And one of the questions we always ask is uh, two questions what, to manage. What, what do you want to do more of? And there's usually yeah. a, it's uh, managing, it's, it's coaching, supervising, training, mentoring. It's in a context. What yeah. do you want to do more of? And then um, why don't you do it? And the answer always is, I want to do more coaching. Why don't you? I don't have time. And that's almost 90% of the responses fall into that category. You know, so here's why I think it's a myth is one is um, not to get too personal because nobody cares. Right. But the um, I, I've been on and I'm on my second one now I'm, uh, in my middle ages, uh, a weight loss journey. Right. Uh, and just, <laughs> things got a little away from me there for a while. Right. So and and it's funny if you look at my weight chart, it goes it spikes way up and it goes way down and bounces around. And it goes way back up and I'm trying to drive it back down again. And the only reason I'm talking about any of this, because nobody, like I said, nobody cares, is that what what I I've care. learned I, is I'm like, trying. Yeah. Well, I well, thank you, man. I appreciate you, man. It's, it's beautiful. But the it's like I, I need to exercise more. I need to think about my diet. I need to plan my meals. But who's got time for that? And what you ultimately, two th there's two points to this myth. Here's the first point. The first point is at some point when you you wake up and decide to commit to whatever it is you're going to commit to, whether it's coaching, weight loss, whatever it is, you know, I don't knitting, but you make the time. You, you, you find some way to force the time and you do the hard trade-offs. Now, I, that's, that comes from a slightly, you know, position of privilege. But for most professionals, I think that's true, at least when it comes to coaching, is that, you know, it's, it, life is about trade-offs, as we all know, not to tell people what they already live every single day. But, and those trade-offs are hard. I tell people about weight loss, same thing I tell people about coaching. Every single day is a decision. And every single day, you've got to remake that decision. You've got to make that decision, that hard decision to say, I'm going to focus on this at this expense of something else. And there's going to be costs for that, whether it's something doesn't get done or I get in trouble or whatever. And sometimes that's really hard math. And sometimes you have to forgive yourself and give yourself the grace to know that that's not always going to be the case. And you can't always make that decision. So that's at a personal level, but that at an organizational level, I think um, here's where this is where it really, this, this point about time really came from. Um, back in the day, as I mentioned, the two early 2000s, um, we profiled a case at the time. It was from uh, Novartis, the pharmaceutical company. Um, I've heard various versions of this since then, but they decided for a number of different reasons, they were going to double down on coaching. They were going to spend a lot of time, money and effort on getting coaching right. And so they went, they did exactly what you've done is they went out and talked to their managers and everyone said, you know, we'd love to coach. We just don't have time. So <clears throat> their conclusion was, wow, we have a capacity problem. We have a time problem. So number one, uh, number one solution is we are going to clear the decks. We are going to kill all the meetings. We're not all of them. We're going to kill many meetings. We're going to we're going to free up time. So before they even got started, they took a survey of their sales reps. This is kind of what got them started on this in the first place around the quality of, and the quantity of coaching that they're receiving. And their sales reps, just like, the scores were like through the floor, right? It's like, we're not getting coaching. It's, it's a low quality coaching. There's basically the overall score for coaching was, was very, very low. So they go through a, a you know, months long process of freeing up time, freeing up capacity, um, just making sure that and, and emphasizing it, telling your managers is important. So they solve the time problem. Then they go out and uh, resurvey their sales reps. And you know how much the coaching scores from the sales reps went up? Absolutely not at all. So, right? There's, there's, there's like the, the more time to coach doesn't mean that I'm going to be any better as a coach, right? That, that at the end of the day, what's, what really we need to focus on is not so much do I spend two hours a week or three hours a week? I'm so confused. It's rather, what the heck should I even be doing in the first place that coaching, that, that, is, that constitutes good coaching? And if I understand that, I'll find the time. I'll make the time. I'll make that hard decision. But, but that it's just so easy to fall back on, you know, I'm not losing weight because I don't have time to go to the gym or I don't have time to think about diet or I'm not coaching because I don't have time because I'm stuck in meetings. And, and re it's rarely the underlying problem. So there's a connection that you're making there uh, that I think's, well, certainly something that I've, I've observed. Um, first of all, yeah. change is hard, right? Uh, you know, yeah, it is. Captain Obvious. And I it, I've heard it said, um, the pain, the definite, people will change when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. And yep. you could apply can I, that. Can I guess everything? Do you know where that comes from? Because actually I know where that comes from. So because that is something that we coined as part of Challenger. Like you got to teach your customers that the pain of same is greater than the pain of change. Where that originally came from, at least if, where we picked it up, and then maybe there's a more like source behind that. But the team at ADP Dealer Services, which was the automotive portion of ADP, which then got sold off and became a company called CDK, 
um, the team, that's how the team used to talk about insight. And so when they saw a challenge, I got like excited because they said, that's what we do. We teach our customers to paint the same as grade and paint a change. And, and we adopted it. So there you go. Anyway, that's a little footnote to our conversation. There you go. Uh, so, I mean, you could apply that to, to weight loss. So when do a lot yeah. of people get really damn serious? Unfortunately, it's when the doctor says, look, you're messed up. Yeah. You're going to, you know, something really yeah. bad is going to happen. Or yeah, you, yeah. you have blank bad disease and you got to get yep. your, 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 you know, your but, but even that's more. often not enough. Cause I had that <laughs> conversation, right. man. I mean, not, not to, I mean, again, not True. to go deep on this, but, but I think it's indicative of the, of what we're up against when it comes to coaching. Cause when I was, my first weight loss journey is about 44. Or so I lost like 75 pounds. Um, I went to the doctor about a year and a half before I started that journey. And, and she looked at me and said, you're, you're overweight. And I was like, I don't know, 41, 42. So you're way too young to weigh this much. You're, you're not that there's ever a good age to weigh this much. And, uh, and if you don't do something about it, I'm going to put you on high blood pressure medicine and you will likely be on high blood pressure medicine for the rest of your life. And that's when she said, you're way too, you're way too young to be on high blood pressure medicine. And she really read me the riot act it kind of freaked me out. And the point of the story, Matt, is not that I changed everything at that point forward, but rather I fixed the problem immediately by never going to the doctor again. That was my solution. It's like, this takes care of itself. If I simply stop going to the doctor and I, I rode that train for a good two years after that, before I finally woke up and made a different decision. And I think that's, that's what happens is like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. It's just, look, we're all human beings and life is hard and life is busy and these things are difficult to do. And it's funny how we will rob ourselves of the opportunity to even focus on the things we'd rather be doing anyway, simply because we get in a rut. I'd rather be coaching and yet you don't. Why is that? It's because you're a human being. Isn't that funny yeah. or weird? I could go down the, the dirt road on this. So th then there's the element though, where someone says, I, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to coach yeah. more, but yeah. then it, something gets in the way. And then the question is, do they know how, do they have the confidence yeah. to do it? I mean, you, yeah. you touched on something and it's one of the questions that I prepared, which is why do managers think that they're coaching and, um, and coaching well, but the, their people think they are not being coached? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't have a bar chart to give you an answer, but but first of all, just acknowledge the challenge, right? This is always super interesting. We've seen this over and over again, right? When you, when you survey managers and ask them, how much time are you coaching? And how good is that coaching? Or ask them to assess coaching in some form or another. And then you ask the sellers that are reporting into them the exact same questions. They're almost always divergent, right? Those Those answers should always line up on sort of a 45 degree angle, depending on how you plot things, and they never do, right? So it's the managers are always um, over-indexed in, in terms of time and quality and, and reps under-indexed, right? The, uh, I, I think, uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Um, the, I think, first of all, it starts with um, a, a lack of a common definition of what do we even mean by coaching, right? It, it, because it's like, managers coach. It's like, I'm coaching. And it's right. So, so if you never coach, it's like, when that happens, the same thing in marriage, right? It's like when something like that happens, it's oftentimes a breakdown in communication more than anything else. It's literally where one has to start is as technical and geeky as this may sound is with the definition of terms, yeah, right? And, and we because at the, at that point, it's a definitional problem. I say I'm coaching. I say you're not coaching. It's like rather than like who there's like, and we always assume, well, one of us must be right and one of us must be wrong. Actually, there is, well, I'm more interested in the world where we're both right. I say I'm coaching, and in my mind, I'm right. You say you're, I'm, I'm not coaching, and in your mind, you're right. Clearly, what if both of those things could be true at the same time? And the way that both those things could be true at the same time is if we are actually defining coaching in two completely different ways. Yep. Um, and, and so that is, you can't make progress against that by picking a winner. It's like, no, she's right, or he's right, or they're right, or they're wrong. You have to, you, you, you have to solve for that by saying, let's just be very clear. When we say coaching, Here's what we mean. It's customized to an individual. It's based on it's based on behavior, not on outcomes. It's uh, uh it's a, a certain amount of time per week. It is embedded into workflow. Whatever you know, there's a lots of different dimensions mm -hmm. of coaching. One might, but but it's like you have to make sure everyone sees the same thing. Otherwise, and then you can go back and ask the question, and you'll still find some divergence. But but I think that's the starting point. Yeah, and and I, I agree with you. I think in the majority of situations, it comes down to a difference in the definition. And I think managers likely think when they're telling people what they need to do, um, yeah. and, and, and re like Monday morning, how was your, how did you do against your metrics for last week? They think that's coaching when they're right. training 
they think that's coaching and it's really not, yeah. you know, the difference between training and coaching. I think some of it falls there. Uh, you want know, think about how, how frustrating this is for a manager then. It's like, well, I, I spent all this time coaching to the outcomes off of the spreadsheet of where we are in the funnel. And you say, well, that's not coaching. And they say, yeah, but I also spent a lot of time coaching on that new training material. Well, that's not coaching, that's training. And the other thing was, it's like, well, then what do you want me to bleep? And I, I would imagine as a manager, it actually gets quite frustrating, right? It's like, I keep doing all these things that in, in the name of coaching and you keep telling me it's not coaching. Well, then what the bleep is coaching, right? And so so it's it's almost unfair to managers and for to reps too, but to, to managers to, to hold them accountable for coaching without any kind of clear definition because it's just, you know, I then you just wind up in a situation where I, I see I'm doing it. And and by the way, this is also under the constant pressure as a manager of delivering the number, right? I've got a territory, I've got a territory number, I've got a quarterly deadline, and I've got to deliver pipeline, and I've got to deliver closed one against that. And uh, so my job, and that is my job, you've told me clearly as a manager, that is my job is to deliver that territory number. Nothing else truly matters except for maybe long-term develop my people, but not if we miss our quarterly goal, right? So, so now... Anything that I do in the name of hitting that quarterly number feels like I am doing my job. And if it's telling a rep, hey, by the way, here's three things you should do to get that deal closed, or let me do it for you, kind of feels like I'm coaching because I'm working towards my goal. And all of a sudden, here comes sales enablement yeah. or some sales trainer or some external consultant saying, no, no, that's not coaching. But then, but see, then, then I'm, and then I'm kind of stuck. Well, it's like, okay, if that's not coaching, I don't know what is problem number one. And two, if that's not coaching and I don't know what is, it doesn't matter because I'm doing the stuff that truly matters because I'm trying to deliver the number and that's my job. So you could take your coaching and you could walk out the door because it's a waste of my time. Okay. Because you see what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, I, it's, the, the human dynamics of this are actually super interesting. Well, it's um, so what is coaching? And then all then it that needs to be defined, but then it also needs to be linked to how that's going to help you get to the number, no. um, you know, right. quickly and more sustainably. And so it, you know, the numbers probably better than I do here, but the rough, roughly speaking, 9%, less than 10% of the training budget goes into training managers on how to be managers and how to be coaches. And so they're yeah. in may lie part, part of the problem. So we're going to try to fix it here. Cause we're going to give people some, uh, some free training and coaching on, on, uh, on that. So to that point, um, I, people always ask, okay, where, where do I get started? And let's say I've gone through this process. I have my proverbial A player, B player, and C player. And yeah. uh, let's assume that most people know that they need to be coached differently. Um, yeah. You can't peanut butter it out. And I know you have a point of view on this. Uh, what is a way the managers can look at? How, how should we be thinking about coaching our A players differently than our B players versus our C players? So, so this comes from um, a, a piece of data we developed again at, at CEB as part of what was that time called the Sales Executive Council, which was the sales practice within CEB. And this is again about 2005. And, and I and a number of us traveled all over the world talking about this data for a number of years and became pretty well known. Uh, we internally often refer to it as the tipping curves graph. Um, the tipping curves graph is simply, it's, it's, well, let me back up. So what we're trying to understand is what is the impact of coaching on different on, on sellers of different at different levels of performance? So if you take your sales force and divide it up into deciles, so you get 10%, the, the, the bottom 10%, and then the next 10, and the next 10, all the way up to the you know the top 10%. And then you um, and then you in survey or interview, in our case, we surveyed, we surveyed this all of those sellers across that range uh, in terms of the quality of coaching that they receive. Um, and then you plot it, what's really interesting. And, and, and so then you, I mean, I've done this in a while, hold on, I've been back up. Um, and then you, and then you, and then you take that data and you cut it. Okay. And so the way you cut that data is for those sellers who report the coaching that they receive from their manager to be of low quality. And there's different methodological ways we did that and scoring and all kinds of stuff. But basically if you say, all right, uh, take all the sales reps across those 10% decile ranges uh, or, or tranches and you, and you map out the quality of, and you map out, okay, so let's see the graph of the sellers who are, who report the quality of coaching they receive from their manager to be of relatively low qualities. It turns out to be kind of, it's a bell curve. And the reason why it's bell curve, of course, is there's, because there's, it's, it's kind of like you have a bottom 15% of your sales force, you have a top 15% of your sales force, and then you've got the 
15, 15 is 30. So you got this kind of the 70% in the middle, right? So it's, so there's just more people in the middle. That's your core performer. So just in terms of frequency, it creates a bell curve. Now, if you were to then say, all right, now show me the graph of the sellers. Uh, what happens to sellers who tell us that they get great coaching, right? And what you would think of that performance curve is that entire performance curve. So, so this is the, if this is the, so that's supposed to be a bell curve, bear with me on my little, you know, uh, my hands don't bend in quite that way. But the, uh, if this is the bell curve of the, of the sellers reporting that the quality of coaching they receive is a low quality, and you were to compare that to the, the, the bell curve or the curve of the sellers reporting that they receive coaching of high quality, what you would think is that entire curve would shift hmm. to the right. Yeah. Well, hopefully that's going to the right for you. It's going to the left for me. But um, as the, the whole point is, it, that, in other words, if the whole curve was to shift to the right, what that means is that quality coaching raises all boats equally. It has an equally significant impact on low performers, core performers, and high performers. Everybody benefits uh, in essentially the same magnitude from higher quality coaching. But what we found, and is super, super interesting, and it makes sense once you kind of sit and think about it, is that curve actually didn't shift to the right. It tipped to the right. So in other words, the feet didn't, the middle moved, but the feet stayed the same. And what the, all that simply means is that what you find is that if let's take, um, let's take a, a core, perf- excuse me, a low performer. And by the way, we took all the rookie reps out of this. But if I'm a low performing seller, so bottom 10%, bottom 15%, what we found is there was really no difference in performance of sellers with a bad coach and sellers with a great coach. That if you're, and, and the point of that simply being, if I'm really, really struggling to sell effectively, you can't solve that simply with coaching because you probably have bigger problems. Like some, there's actually a significant talent gap, or maybe there's a motivation gap, or I'm just not cut out for this, or there's something else going on there that simply coaching can't fix in the bottom sort of decile or the bottom 15% of your sales force. Now, likewise, up on the on the top end where your stars, you know, with, with your star performers, your star performers are all per, already pretty stellar, as we used to say. And so if I take a star performer and take away their bad coach and give them a great coach, they're already stars. So it's not like you're going to, the incremental benefit that you can have from giving them a great coach is, is, is um, relatively small. This, this data came out at the time when Tiger Woods was Tiger Woods, right? When he was crushing it at golf. Mm-hmm. And so we used to say, look, if I give Tiger Woods a, a significantly better coach, how much better is Tiger Woods going to be? Maybe I'll shave another stroke off a score here and there, but I'm not going to make him 10x better because he's already freaking amazing, right? right so, right. but if I take that same world class coach and put him or her against the core performers, the magnitude of increase in performance you're going to see is massive, and that's exactly what this tipping bell curve showed us: is that the the benefit in terms of performance from coaching really resides in your core performers. It's it's moving the middle, the movable middle, to the right, yeah. Exactly. So unlike thinking about spreading your coaching bets so democratically, as you said, like peanut butter, it's like I coach every one of two things happens in nature, right? Either I, I try to be very magnanimous, I, I try to be the, to do the right thing and f- what feels like the right thing and coach everyone the same amount, right? Because I got 10 reps, so they each get two hours, right? That totally makes sense. It feels logical. Or or the other thing that happens is like almost like this donut hole. I spend most of my time coaching the stars because it's fun and the strugglers because they're struggling and the and the people in the middle get kind of forgotten. Yeah. And literally what the data tells us, the true benefit is literally the exact opposite of that, um, is that you coach your core for performance and, there, and there's massive benefit to be had from that. And then the last, I know I'm rambling on, so they'll just get all on the table and then that'll take a breath. But the we did find a benefit for coaching star performers, but it wasn't in terms of performance. It was in terms of engagement. So for us at CB at the time, engagement was all about two things. It was about what we call discretionary effort. You're willing to go the extra mile, put in the extra hour and intent to stay. Like, I love it here. I'm not leaving. And what we found is even though coaching didn't have a significantly strong impact on sales performance for those top performers, it did have a statistically significant impact on their in, on their um, on their engagement. So intent to stay and, and discretionary effort for for even those star performers. So bottom line, put it all together, wrap it up in a bow. You coach your core for performance and your stars for engagement, uh, and that's just a really different way of thinking about how you spread your bets. And, and can, uh, coaching the top performers for engagement, can we also say you coach your top performers for re- to retain them? Is that is that get you, yes? Because retention is at least for us at the time, retention was baked into an engagement score. Mm-hmm. So. So if you think of en- almost like a root cause or a root cause, we say in Nebraska, right? So uh, here's engagement and engagement was made up of two things. It was discretionary effort and intent to stay. So yes. Yeah, so retention sits here with intent to stay 
which is all part of this engagement idea. Uh, love the donut hole analogy. Uh, you know, that's yeah. something they've cer certainly observed. It, you know, and it does feel like what you're talking about, you know, based on the data that uh, the research that you did a while back, you know, when we talk about coaching, what's what um, what's old is new again. And it's almost like yeah. people are like, oh, wow, yeah, we should be doing this. But it's not new. Kind of took right? our eye off that ball, right? No, it's not. And, you know, I mean, my whole life has been spent or my whole professional career has been spent saying things that people tell me aren't new, right? That's when, when Challenger came out. I was like, there's nothing new here. My stars are doing that already. And we say, well, no, we know your stars are doing it already because it wouldn't have shown up in the data otherwise. But the, um, but, you know, it's frustrating for me a little bit, although I've kind of come to terms with it because apparently it's just like the futility of our own humanity. Uh, that got dark again. Sorry. But the, uh, is that, you know, all, we made so much progress against coaching in 2004 to 2007 and companies all over the world were, you know, talking about the tipping curves and companies were putting in coaching programs and there was training. And, you know, this is about the same time um, as Linda Richardson really was at her peak and doing all the amazing work that Linda did. I've never met Linda personally, but I met a lot of their team that they were, that team was doing around coaching as well to give full credit to them. Um, you know, there were other firms out there focused on coaching as well. And then, you know, whether it's the global financial crisis, whether it's people got distracted by, you know, thought leadership or maybe by challenger or just kind of lost the thread or we all just got old, moved on and other people took our places. But somehow we, we just dropped the thread. We dropped the ball on coaching. And here we are nearly 20 years later and everyone's talking about it like it's, oh, we should probably focus on this. And it's like, oh, man, it's kind of our, how do we even make progress as humanity? It's kind of crazy. It, um, well, the tipping curve. Too much. Sorry. No, no, no. You like, had, I had I had you to the last statement. Keep going. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I uh, the tipping curves graph. Uh, I I want to go and and take a look at that because in addition to yeah. learning learning some stuff that is based on what we're talking about, it seems like it would also provide quantitative uh, evidence to uh, the quip. You can't coach dumb. But um, and anyway. We, we had one guy on our team. I, I didn't. I'll say this, but I won't name his name because it's a little unfair. Some will know what I'm talking about, perhaps, but my predecessor in my role at CB at the time, his phrase was, you can't coach dogs out of the kennel, which felt a little dehumanizing, but nonetheless, it, um, that's, that's, well, that's what he used to say. Um, but, but one way or another, but by the way, just because if, you know, you know why it bothers me? One is because it calls humans dogs, but, but two, it, it feels like it downplays, Matt, something that we should all be aware of, which is there's probably other things going on there. Those people are human beings yes. with lives that are complex and rich and, and they're struggling. And th by the way, if you're in the bottom 15%, it's not like you're surprised by it. You wake every single day, if you slept at all, with a pit in the bottom of your stomach, freaked out about how am I going to pay for my bills and pay the rent and, and feed my family when I am in, not doing well in my job, that is terrifying, right? And so, yeah. and I think at the end of the day, that just simply means, and I mean this with huge respect for people in that situation, I've been in that situation. We all have at some point in our careers in some way or in some role, right? It, it is, um, is that that's an opportunity to have a broader conversation. That's not like, let's talk about the Smith account and how to move it forward. That's a, let's have a broader conversation about what's right for you and where's your next step. Because you know what I mean? So that's, that full stop. Yeah, I, I, I think- I, I want to pull that thread a little bit because yeah. you went someplace that I don't know. I, I, I didn't anticipate you going. I, be, you're an you're a researcher. You're you, you yep. have a lot of analytical skills, and a lot of your work is based on that. What you're talking yeah. about is something more uh, non-analytical, whatever that word is. It's more personal. It's like the fact that there's something going on yeah. in somebody's life, and that's right. There's a lot going on in the world right now. There's you know, yep. you know, uh, in employees show up for their reasons to work. They work for their reasons, not the company's reasons and things get in the way. Is there, when it comes to coaching, is there a yeah. effect? Is it effective? Is there a responsibility? You know, should managers uh, get to know their people in such a way as to find out what may be getting in their way outside of work um, and help to clear the path so that they can be more comfortable and more effective at their job? I you know, a lot of that's boy, a word salad, but I think you know where I'm going. No, with. no, but I got it. But we're 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 treading you know very quickly into the world of HR, um, which is fine, except for the fact that I'm no expert here, and I'm probably going to say all sorts of things that have legal legal implications I haven't even thought of. Right, but the uh, uh, this is one man's opinion. So I, I'm now just to be super clear. I was speaking from data before, and now I'm just speaking from opinions. I don't know if anyone care about this, but I I think the best managers 
and I'll give you an analogy here in a second, but I think the best managers will at least offer their employees, their team members, a path to to um, a a um, a penalty free path to at least open that conversation. Right at, at the end, of it, it's still got to be professional. Look again, that manager's got to deliver a number. There's a territory, and there's a number on his or her head, and they've got a and they've got a quarterly deadline, and so that's what they're up against. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't take a moment to just explore the humanity of just how can I help you? How can I? I want to be here to to help you either figure out whether this is right for you and help you get better and offer you the opportunity. But I think I think it's it's a two way street, right? I used to, so I was a teacher for many many years before I became yeah you know, I was a researcher then too. I was a, on the faculty at Michigan State as a professor of linguistics and German of all things. But the um uh, which is my first career, and I used to tell my students this every semester. I say I I you know there's certain expectations we're going to set for this class. There's a syllabus. There's homework. There's tests, and and you've got to perform at a certain threshold level to get a to get the grade that you want to get. Um, and I used to tell them I will bend over backwards. It's on me to teach you as best as I can, but it's on you to do the work. And I can't do the work for you, but I will meet you. My promise to you personally is I will meet you halfway. And if you're struggling in class, come to my office hours and I will help you. But my philosophy of teaching would be the same as a manager. Is like, I taught to my A students. I came in and I gave them hell every single day. It's like, we're going to like, give me this, the smart kids in the room, the ones that have done the work, the ones that put in the time, and we're going to go hard. And we're going to learn as much as we possibly can because life is short and I got 50 minutes and we're going to go. And if you struggle in that environment, then come, come find me and we will, we'll do the work and we'll do the supplemental work and we'll find a way to make it work. But you got to, you got to kind of take the responsibility yourself to come to me, to sit down, to open, to, to start that conversation. The door is open literally in this case, but, but I can't, I can't bring you to the door. And I think that's that's not really about teaching or sale, selling. It's about just humanity. It comes back to the thing we're talking about with weight loss. Crazy enough. So this is why I talk about this stuff. It's not because it's like a total non sequitur, but because it's all connected. It's like every single yep. day is a decision, right? Every single day we've got to decide, do I want help? Am I willing to reach out for help? Do I, can, I, can I allow myself to ask for help? Uh, and, and, and you've got to be open to coaching to receive it. Boy, that sounds really tree-huggy, doesn't it? But it's kind of true, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, no, it is true. And a lot of the stuff um, is that is tree huggy uh, is, is real. <laughs> by, uh, by the way, all those college, I've got five college degrees and, and just so you're wondering that four of them are liberal arts. So if that's, if you're wondering where I'll say, yes, I'm a geeky researcher, but I'm more than that, I'm a liberal arts guy. Yeah, so no, poli sci, brother. <laughs> I saw that, that, you know, Boston <laughs> college, right? But poli sci, I'm like, I'm glad uh, there's hope for me. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, BC, uh, there's hope for, there's hope for me. I'm, I'm looking at you. You're, Let's yeah. see. There you go. Yeah. So that we've, we've done okay. Right. It's like, so by the way, now you can answer the question, what are you going to do with a poli sci major? It's because now that we're in our fifties, we can say, well, this is what you do with a poli sci major. <laughs> Although I, I, I made sure my kids did not do that, but um, I was paying for it. Uh, so the, the managers that do what you did, like you know, can make that connection. Hey, I'll meet you halfway. I'll bend over backwards. Yeah, they're they're known. Yeah. They're, the, people say they have that it factor, and and, yeah. and that's what I, I think makes people want to work for that manager. Uh, that's yeah. why those managers may may go, you know, be a little bit head and shoulders above others. Not that they're uh, they may be as or even a little bit more operationally sound, but they had that that personal uh, it factor yeah. that people connected yeah. with them and said, Hey, look, I'm struggling. I need some help. And you know, they met them yeah. halfway. I don't know. My, my two cents. But, on but, that. but it's hard. It's I know. I think you're right. But the, just to be fair to the managers who maybe don't think like that or aren't like that or wish they were like that, but less is that it's all, it just kicks the whole thing up one notch and level, right? Cause that in turn is hard. And some managers are going to struggle with their ability to be good coaches and they've got to seek help on how to become better coaches. Right. And so it literally is the same story, just repeating itself one level up, one level up, one level up until you get to the CEO who lives at night thinking, I got to make all these decisions on my own. And she or he doesn't know what to do. And it's terrifying at the top, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's really interesting. But at every single one of those levels, you know what we are? We're all just human beings just trying to schlub our way through this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. Um, right? So, so Brent, we've uh, talked a, a little bit. You've touched on the work uh, that uh, you did when uh, working on Challenger. Um, yeah. There's a, you know, these are my words, but there's a Challenger then and there's a Challenger now. And it it would seem like 
what was good then was really good then, but it may not apply <laughs> exactly today. And the way I'm interpreting what you've been putting out there is that mm-hmm. what, what customers need now is something different. They don't need someone to challenge them to prove value. Like, Hey, I know what I'm talking about. I'm a, I'm a domain expert and I'm going to tell you what you, what keeps you up at night, that type of stuff. It seems like they need something different. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I I think I I don't know. I, I, I'd probably dial it back at least a not half notch, if not a full notch, Matt, in terms of, I don't know if they need something different, but maybe they certainly need something additional, right? So uh, we could debate about whether it's different. I I, th- I don't think this is a stop-start story. I think it's more of a yes-and Yes, story, and. Okay. That's yeah, my wife you know keeps I mean? telling me that. It's it, don't, don't say but, it's yes-and. Okay. I keep, people keep telling me that too. It's like, I love saying no. So, so I, I, don't, I don't live comfortably in the yes-and world. It's like, no, that's a horrible idea. But, the, uh, but for, for this case, I will, I will buy into it. And here's why. I, first of all, I stand by the challenge work. Just full disclosure for your audience. Um, I don't have any affiliation today with that IP. That IP is owned by the Challenger company, which is spun out by, um, by Gartner. So th- they own the books and the training and all that kind of stuff. Um, this is what happens when you write books for companies, by the way. So, the, um, so I'm just an independent dude right now. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't stand by the work. Sure. I, I, think, I think in a lot of ways, we, we really f- captured lightning in a bottle. We, we asked some really interesting questions that allowed us to derive some really powerful data that then in turn allowed us to tell a really, really relevant story. Um, that is clearly, that continues to resonate today. In fact, I just presented on Challenger uh, just last week. Um, the, the, the thing that's, but, but the world moves on, right? And the world changes. And, and I think in a lot of ways, the world that we're selling into today, the environment that we're selling in today is, is pretty different than the world that we were selling into 11 years ago, 12 years ago, when we first did that work. The, the original work, the data we collected in 2008, I mean, we've collected since then as well, but 2008 was a while ago. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to believe how long ago it was, but the, uh, it's a little terrifying. Um, it's a lot of existential dread in this conversation, Matt, so bear with me. But, the, uh, the, but nonetheless, the, the thing that's different today, if I, had to, if I had to boil it down to a one word, one single word, the entire, the entire narrative about how the world is different today, um, for Challenger, it'd be the word context, which is, I think, actually, and this might be where I'd parse your words a little differently, is I think it actually still can be extremely valuable to show up to customers with an insight as opposed to a bunch of questions for you. Like, Absolutely. What are you working on? What's you on, right? Have a hypothesis and even better, have some evidence, a data-driven perspective on how they could make money, save money, mitigate risk in ways that they had never fully anticipated. Challenge your thinking diplomatically, professionally. I still, I will stand by that because it's what I'm kind of doing in this conversation. It's literally what I do for a living. So there's a, there's a projection bias for me there. Well, they'll always be very personal. Although it was all data-driven, it always resonated with me because it's kind of how I live my life. And I agree with you, by um, the way. I, it, yeah. Perhaps a bad yeah. phrased question. But- no, it's all good. It's all good. I wasn't trying to pick hairs or, you know, you have to pick at your wording or anything, but, but I, I want to be clear about this because a lot of people have vested a lot of time, money and effort in the challenger and I, I, I stand by it. However, so here's the, however, I guess it is a yes, but right. But the, the thing that that's really interesting, so let me take it back in time a little bit to our lived lives. Right. So I, I have a, I have a somewhat of a tongue in cheek joke, but I think it's kind of true. So somewhere around about 2014, 2015, my sense is that every single CEO of every company in the world woke up one morning, looked in the mirror and said, we're really struggling to differentiate and stand on our marketplace. What are we going to do differently? And they all had the same idea at the same time. So I know what we're going to do. We're going to be a thought leader, right? So because if we can be a thought leader in our industry, we're going to demonstrate to our customers that we have deeper insights, smarter understanding of their markets, that Essentially, it was very parallel to Challenger. Whether you were on the Challenger journey or not, we all kind of came to this conclusion that we could share ideas and evidence and content and ide- uh, you know, concepts and data with our customers that will help them think differently about their business. To and become, the very to next become trusted advisors. To become, tra- exact, that's exactly right. So because if, if we could be thought leaders and they're going to come to us first with their mission critical priorities and they're going to trust us to solve their, deep, you know, their, their deepest challenges and we'll become a trusted advisor. God love marketing, and I do. I love marketers and marketing, but they, they saw this and said, oh, wait a minute, we have a mandate. The CEO wants to be a thought leader. We could do something about that. In fact, let's build a strategy around this. So they built a whole strategy around this called content marketing. And right about that, some t- that same time, HubSpot kind of woke up and said, I woke up, they didn't wait. But you know, it's like HubSpot came along and said, oh, I've got some software for that, right? So we, we'll call that marketing automation, right? And others, of course, got on that bandwagon too. 
And then, and then we all of a sudden had more da- access to data than ever before. So now I've got an entire strategy backed by technology, su- uh, su- supplied by data to essentially spam the world at scale with pretty smart stuff. And so if you fast forward to 2018, 19, right before the pandemic, what we first started seeing in our data is that customers were really becoming overwhelmed, right? Up until that point, the challenger story had been largely a story of customers are empowered like never before to learn on their own, to do their due diligence, to delay contact with the supplier. And I think that's still, I don't think, I know that's still absolutely true today. Many of them don't want to talk to a supplier rep ever, right? But what we find though, is when you talk to those customers, whether they're talking to sellers or not, what we do know is that they're just like overwhelmed. There's just, it's not just there's a lot of, there's a high quantity of information, but there's a high quantity of high quality information. You've got data, they've got data, she's got data, he's got data. The, you know, there's competitors, there's advisory firms, there's you know Gartner and Forrester. Everybody's got a data set. Everybody's got some research. Everybody's got a white paper and a video series, and these days, even a TikTok. And I'm just confused at a higher level. And so when you think about, and th- there's a, 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 with a lot of help from the team at Gartner, um, it was one of the last things, the last bylines I got before I left Gartner is an article in HBR called Sense Making for Sales. And if anyone wants to unpack this in more detail, um, you can find it there, Sense Making for Sales. I think it's a January issue. I think it's January, must be January 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but in any case, this is what I'm getting to, Matt, is imagine now in this world, which was not the world in, 20, in 2012, when, 2011, when the book came out, right? That was the world of, I show up with features and benefits and a product catalog telling you my speeds and feeds, right? But now we're showing up with white papers and videos and marketers are you know spamming. I call this the smartness arms race, right? It was like, We've got more content out there across more dimensions and more channels than ever before. And in this world today, that was different than 12 years ago. If I show up with a commercial insight and say, here's how we think you should think differently about your business. My reaction today is like, great, I'll put that on the list with the five other ideas of how to think differently about my business and maybe I'll get to it. But right now you're telling me to zig and they're telling me to zag and I don't know what to do. So maybe I better study this longer. And so why don't I call you back later? And do nothing. And so I think- And do nothing. That's exactly right. Because it's just so freaking overwhelming coming back to our human perspective, right? And so now imagine you don't show up with an insight at all, right? Well, then that's, that's why it's a yes and, right? It's like, well, then you're really not valuable. So at least have a freaking take, yeah. right? But, but remember I told you, it all boils down to this word context. Understand how your take, your commercial insight fits in the context of all of that other content your customers are likely consuming from all of those other sources. And if you can be the one seller who shows up, not just with yet more content, but with a framework to help them understand how your content, your insight fits into the context of all of that other content and snaps together to create one sort of big perspective and then help my customers on their own come to their own conclusions about, you know, there's a lot of content out there. If you haven't seen this, you probably want to take a look at it. Here's our take on it. But as you think about what you want to do next, you know, in working with other customers like you, I use that phrase all the time. Anyone's ever sure. heard me keynote will know that I, I say that a lot. In working with other customers like you, we found that as you go through all this content, which can be a little overwhelming, it probably comes down to three questions you want to ask yourself to help you figure out what to do next. And it's like, I, I call this not frame breaking. I call this frame making. The idea of taking something big and hard and overwhelming and complex and putting a framework around it, such that I'm still allowing for degrees of freedom within that framework for you to come to your own conclusions, but I'm making it feel doable. I'm making it feel easier. I'm making it feel less overwhelming, less intimidating, such that you feel like I just need to study this more. I'll come back to this later. And that's, that's, that's what I'm on now. And that that frame making as opposed to the frame breaking, uh, here's yeah. those three questions. If I'm reading your material right and processing it, yeah, it's a it's 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 about boosting their confidence in making a decision. And the more confident they are, they're going to make a decision. Now that decision may not always go for X Y Z company, but at least they're making a decision instead of doing the ostrich treatment, sticking their head in the sand where every every sales yeah. team in the world is chasing them and uh, those opportunities of getting birthdays in uh, in CRM systems. It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, it's exactly right. So the, a lot of, you know, and by the way, my co-author in the Challenger Sale, a friend of mine, my friend Matt Dixon and, and another colleague of ours, Ted McKenna, they're they, former colleagues. They, those two have now started a company together with some others, all former CBers, really smart people. Um, they published a book about a year ago called The Jolt Effect. And The Jolt Effect talks a lot about this. So it's worth checking out if you haven't already. Um, but for me personally, and, and for sort of coming out of the Gartner time, because Matt had already departed at this point, at least from the sales practice, it comes back to a body of work that we were pursuing at Gartner prior to my departure around 
what are the drivers of what we call a high quality, low regret deal? So a bigger deal with a bigger footprint, higher price point, higher margins where customers nonetheless, they'll feel good about it at the same time. Hank Barnes, by the way, if, if anyone out there, um, uh, want, you need to follow Hank Barnes, B-A-R-N-E-S. Hank is still at Gartner and still pursuing a lot of this work and publishes on it on LinkedIn. He's a brilliant guy and a really nice dude. But in any case, in, in trying to understand the drivers of a high quality, low regret deal, Matt, the by far the single biggest attribute that we found, like if I want to increase the likelihood of winning a high quality, low regret deal, what's the one thing I should manage to more than anything else? And by far the answer was the degree to which customers are confident in the decisions they make on behalf of their company. Hmm. So we call this customer decision confidence. And, and this is what I'm working on now and writing about, you know, between what we learned at Gartner, what I've learned since then and you know, other case studies and stuff, I'm putting, you know, putting all this together in, into a book around what I call frame making, as I mentioned. But the heart and soul of this is that the really interesting opportunity that we have as sellers today isn't so much to focus on how to change customers' perceptions of us. Are we, a, you know, do you think of me as a trusted advisor? Do you think of me as a thought leader? Do you think of me as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, an, a strategic partner? Is some of those classes like, enough about me. Now you talk about me, right? So <laughs> we're so focused on how our customers think about us. And yet I've got data. We've got data that shows the number one thing customers really care about. Not surprisingly, because you know why? Coming back to the same theme for this whole conversation, they're human beings. The number one they think they care about is not my perception of you, but my perception of me. Are we confident enough in our own decision to make this decision in the first place? And so that raises a really interesting opportunity. What if your goal as a seller was not so much to change the way customers think about us, but to change the way customers think about themselves. How can I interact with them in such a way to help them be more confident, not to decide for us versus the competition, but to just make a bleeping decision in the first place and be the one that's actually helpful in doing that such that they just make more decisions. I, I think we'll all take our share of the pie if we could just make, and just make the pie bigger by just creating more decisions. That's a very powerful strategy, I think. It, it sounds like that's the essence of being customer-centric. I mean, it's certainly part yeah. of it. It certainly plays into it. If we're worried about building their confidence instead of just getting the deal, like we're focusing on, it's another way to focus on them. Would that be fair? I think that's right. So so I did, um, before I, I departed, um, I was at a company called Ecosystems for about a year and a half. It's a really cool SaaS platform in the value management space. And and they gave me sort of a place to to work on, funny enough, thought leadership and research and things like that. And so as part of that, I, I for a year and a half, I published a, a weekly YouTube series called Brent's Breakdown. Mm -hmm. uh, the person on the team and named it had no idea how close they got to the reality. But the uh, and it's like these six minute videos. They're still out there. They're on YouTube, and you find you can find them out there on YouTube uh, under Brent's Breakdown. But I did one an episode on on this idea once, and the whole idea, Matt, was you know the the, the challenge I have with being customer centric is we all say it. We all yeah. I can't tell you how many sales kickoffs, how many keynotes I've done where I've been on stage where the CEOs just got off the stage and said, "This is the year of the customer." This is the year we surround the customers. Customer 360, the customer is the center of everything we do. We're going to be customer centric. And in no disrespect to any of those companies, but you just kind of scratch the surface of what they're actually doing. And it always comes back to be supplier centric. It's like, I'm going to be customer centric by focusing on how the customers think about us. It's like, that's not customer centric. So the, the better way to think about it is what I did in this video is I, I think the better way to think about it is not to be customer centric, but to be supplier agnostic. How can I, and, and the heart and soul of Challenger, by the way, just like frame making is in fact supplier agnostic. I'm not trying to get you to love me. I'm trying to get you to embrace a different direction. That's mm -hmm. Challenger. I'm not trying to get you to think better about me or be more confident in me. I'm trying to get you to be more confident in yourself. That's frame making. And, and to take yourself kind of out of the story completely in such a way that you don't lead with you, but you lead to you. Um, everything, 20 years of research, Matt, and it keeps coming back to that same point. Be supplier agnostic. And it, it seems like, Brent, that it kind of goes back to the definition, you know, what, what do these definitions mean, even customer centric, yeah. because it's like coaching. Well, well what does it mean? If, if it means yeah. what the way you just framed it, then more people would get it. And then the question is, okay, now that I know what it means, how do I do that? Well, I get them to be confident in their decision, right? Uh, exactly. Et, 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 yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So you talked about, you know, said, you know, you said one of the challenges is we're all human beings. Um, so let's talk about human beings for, for a second um, as, as we move to close this out. Uh, yeah, sure. We, we talk about coaching and developing people, and you uh, talk about that in many different ways and research that in many different ways over the years. Um, yeah. I have two, two questions. Uh, so I'm going to give them both, and you can answer them in the however you'd like. One question is to share a time where someone coached you, had a 
impact on your career. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How you can go wherever you want with that. And the second question is, uh, who, when you think about the word coach, and 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 perhaps you've had coaches in your life, however you define that, who is the best coach? When when asked that question, what, what's the response that comes to mind? Oh gosh. The second one, um, let, let's do let's do it in reverse order. And I, I appreciate your flag of like as we wrap this up. So okay, so the, <laughs> you're very funny, uh, dude. Make it short. Um, the the second question, I don't. You know, I, it's like oh god, I, I'm not gonna just don't name a football coach because it's so overwrought and nobody cares, right? So the uh, and I don't have one in mind anyway. Um, I don't have a person. I have a word that comes to mind though, Matt, and the, the word is empathy, right? It's the I think to be a great coach in sports and in, in, in work in life is in, in the classroom. And this is a lesson I had to learn over and over again as a teacher. And I was, I was a pretty decent teacher, but, but I learned to be a decent teacher over the years, Matt, through humility, right? Through realizing I didn't really know what was going on in my students' lives. Uh, and when I, sometimes I'd learn and you realize it was some pretty heavy stuff, like, you know, just all of the heavy stuff that we as humans go through, whether it's relationships or drugs or, you know, it's just like financial situations, depressions, mental, you know, challenges. Uh, we're all just, I, again, I don't want to overdo it, but, but we're just human beings and trying to muddle our way through. And if you can come to coaching with, with a, a certain humility and a certain empathy that, and, and, a, and a collaborative spirit of let's just see if we can work on this together. I think that's going to likely increase your likelihood to be an effective coach. Um, yeah. And it's served me well. And I will tell you, I still struggle with that sometimes. I, you know, it's particularly, I've got this brand around me and my name and people say, oh, you're the expert. It's like, I don't really know what I'm doing either, man. We're all just muddling through. And, and I think this I'm collaborative. Others, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I, no, but I, I don't, I, Maybe it's just because that's why I keep the state of Nebraska floating above my left shoulder here, right? Is is because that's my roots or my roots, as we like to say there. It's like we're very humble people, and and I, and I think there's a reason for that. Is because we need to be humble. <laughs> I've earned humility, trust me. Uh, but the uh, but and so so I think so. With that in mind, the person that uh, and this is no one's gonna this won't matter to anyone. But but since you offered me the opportunity, I will just take a very brief moment to call out my dissertation advisor who has since passed away uh, tragically way too soon. Um, his name is Frank Donahue and he was a professor of German at the University of Texas um, in Austin where I did all my graduate work. And he effectively saved me. He was, um, he was the person when I was so completely lost professionally, gave me a, an island to, to pull myself up onto the shore and and gave me a, a path a path to ultimately become a professor and a, and a full-time researcher he taught me just about everything i know about presenting and teaching and when you see me up on stage doing a sales kickoff anything i do that's of any good i learned from frank donahue 35 40 years ago and i miss him desperately and and i think to, to your point it was like i don't know that's coaches you have to create that that i think of frank less as a coach and more of a mentor yeah. which has this even deeper sort of meaning to it. I mean, he was life-changing for me. And so I want to be careful there that when we talk about coaching, we don't set the bar so high, right? Because then I'm, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just asking you to coach. I'm not asking you to change someone's life. But but somewhere on that humility and empathy spectrum of just, be, I don't, you can, you can actually achieve that level of mentorship, that level of impact. The fact that someone's talking about you with a love and nostalgia 30 years from now, by just helping them feel better, not about you, but helping them feel better about themselves, which is exactly what we were just talking about with B2B buyers. Well, I think, uh, was it Maya Angelou? And people don't remember uh, what you knew. They remember how you made them feel, I'm sure. Uh, he yeah. he was a super smart person, but he yeah. also, it, you're remembering kind of how he made you feel too. Is there a like an example that you recall that you can share that you said he saved you? Like, is there, was there like a, one of those it's a, it's tough love type longer, of things, or, yeah. Well, well there's there's a longer story for a longer podcast on a totally different topic sometime. But but um, yeah, that gets to stuff nobody cares about about my personal where I was in my life professionally and stuff. But but I will tell you this because it's actually it's been ringing in my ears every day. As you know, um, I've since departed Eco as friends. But but the reason why is not because I wanted to depart Eco, but because 
I've got this idea in my head about this this body of work called frame making, and I, I want to put it in book form, and I want to see if I can capture lightning in a bottle one more time before it's all done, and just help the world a little bit. So I'm full time writing I'm, and working on a couple other projects, but um, and when you write a book like The Challenger Sale, or a part of writing a book called The Challenger Sale that is as successful as it is, I will tell you, Matt, God's honest truth, it's for me at least, maybe not for Matt because he's already produced a couple more, but it's a little intimidating to sit down and write another book, right? I've done it with the challenger customer, but it's still part of that. So, so I am struggling a little bit to be totally honest or with, um, with a little bit of writer's block with a little bit of doubt, what you name it. And, and Frank Donahue, God love that man. He's, um, he's in my ear because I, I went through something very similar when I wrote my dissertation and it was very, very hard. And, and for anyone who's written a dissertation, I'll know that it takes you to just some like really dark places. Uh, and he looked at me one day and, and he just, cause I wanted perfection. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to come onto the scene as the new professor. You, you set the bar so high for yourself, just like I am right now. And Frank looked at me one day and he said, Brent, he says, you got to understand. He said, the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. And that's, that's the words that are ringing in my ear right now, Matt. Wow. I, yeah. I, yeah. I think that the best blank is a finished blank. Uh, right. I think, you know, a lot of people that are listening can, can take that and apply it to something that, that they're dealing with, uh, with today. So, uh, really a uh, great story. And, and, and thanks for sharing that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Brent, what you've done a lot, you're doing a lot, you, you know, you, yeah. you, you talked a little bit about the book. People follow you, they read your books. Where, where can they find you today? And, you know, how would you describe what you're doing today? And like you said, maybe, maybe it's, I'm solely focused on, uh, I capturing lightning in a bottle. The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. That's where I hang out a little, you know, I'm there every day just mm -hmm. checking the things. I'm sure you are too, Matt. The, uh, um, uh, I've, you know, I've got a little speaking website. If you're looking for, you know, as I, I joked with you before I got on air, it's like, if you need me for a sales kickoff or birthday parties, bar mitzvahs, I'm actually already keynoting on this content. It's actually, it's, it's landing extremely well, which is what led me to decide to write a book. There's a couple other projects um, I am working on. Um, stay TBD on those. Stay tuned. We're not quite ready to take the covers off. But if anyone out there has got like a million dollars lying around, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but other than that, um, some big things coming. I, I talk about 2024 as the year of bet on Brent. So that's what I'm doing. I'm bet on Brent. Bet. All right. Yeah, I'm going to bet on me. One month in. How are you feeling? Uh, terrified. All right. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Uh, utter fears and motivation utter and completely terrified. I don't know exactly how I'm going to feed my family several months from now. So that's a motivator. Let me tell you. Well, isn't fear, isn't pain a great five times greater motivator than gain? Probably so. Something that's like 100% that. true. Well, um, Brent, last, last question. There's yeah. a lot of leaders, a, a lot of, you know, our, our target audience is sales leaders, right? From, you know, CRO yeah. on down, people want to be leaders uh, in primarily, not all, but primarily in, in technology sales, B2B SaaS. And a lot of folks are got that battlefield promotion. They were good at what they did. And it's like, hey, congrats. Now you're a manager and they're trying to figure it out. Um, totally. Any advice for that leader who uh, is struggling to find the time uh, on how to be that better coach, but they know it's important? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's what we were talking about earlier, and it's a lesson I have to teach myself every single day. It's two it's two parts. One is um, ask for help, be willing to ask for help, but be willing to do the work. Be willing to you do know, the work. It's, it's 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 the meet me halfway. It's exactly what I used to ask my students. My door is open, and if you come knock on my door, I will bend over backwards to help you. But but you have to want the help, right? And I I think that's where managers are so, I would imagine a lot of managers are probably just like me right now with this book. They're a little terrified, right? It's like, I can't tell people I don't know what to do because then I'll, I'll, I'll unveil myself as incompetent or something. It's like, it's okay. I, I think I, I've well done 99% of my life, Matt, to those two words. Technically, it's maybe three, but it's okay. It's just okay. It's okay. So ask for help, but then be willing to do the work to receive the help. That's, that's the lesson I have to keep teaching myself every day. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. And uh, what you're doing and where people can find you, we will uh, make sure that we put all of that in in the show cool. notes. Um, we appreciate, I appreciate you spending time with us today. And we talked about coaching, the definition, what it is, how to do it. We talked about customer confidence, um, frame making, right? There, there's, a, there's a lot going on out there. And, um, yeah. you know, I, 
I think that listening to you, there's a bunch of nuggets that, that we can take from it and uh, we're thankful for it. So thank you very much, Brent. Absolutely, Matt. Thank you and be well. All right. And for everybody listening out there and watching, uh, thanks for doing so. If When you see this uh, content, let us know what you think. Like it if you like it. Uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to see more of. And until next, next time, coach them if you want to keep them. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.